Hi there, you're listening to What Are You Going To Do With That? The podcast of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I'm Dani, I'm a PhD candidate, and I chat with early career researchers to learn about their ups and downs during their studies and in academia. I'd like to invite you to check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts by searching for What To Do With That or at What To Do With That, where the two is spelled with the number two. There you will find more information about our former and upcoming guests and about their research. And while you're at it, please like and share. Today I'm talking with a fellow podcaster and PhD in cell biology, David Mendes da Silva. David holds a Bachelor and Master of Science in Microbiology and Genetics from the University of Lisbon in Portugal. Following these studies, David landed jobs such as, such as researcher and teaching assistant in Lisbon, where he taught laboratory courses in microbial molecular taxonomy, microbial diagnosis, molecular differentiation, and also cell biology and biochemistry. Additionally, he worked as a government representative for the generic drugs program at Portugal's Pharmacy and Drug Administration Agency. After having held these positions for about five years, David continued with a PhD in cell biology at the Center for Neuroscience and Cell Biology at the University of Coimbra, if I'm pronouncing that right. All, yeah. Great. Also in Portugal, while his doctoral research was performed as a visiting research student at the Montreal Neurological Institute at McGill University. David did not stay in academia after completing his PhD. Instead, he started working as a senior medical writer at a pharmaceutical company in Montreal, which includes medical writing for drug launch campaigns and ensuring accuracy of medical and scientific information. He continued to get a certificate in translation from English to French, allowing him to be both a medical writer and translator up to today. We got to know David through his podcast, Papa PhD. He is the creator, producer, and host of the Papa PhD podcast that focuses on career and life balance for academics and graduate researchers. You can find all of the episodes on his website, papaphd.com, or on any major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. I can personally recommend the episode with Maurice Thomas, who speaks about how to enrich your graduate school experience, which has two parts. So go on and check it out. But first, Let's actually hear David's story. Welcome to the show, David, and to another podcast than your own. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad that, that uh, we we are we set up this collaboration or this uh, interaction, let's say, between our, our two podcasts. Uh, this is going to be a kind of a, a twin episode: one on on the the Papa PhD side, and one on the what are you going to do with that side. And uh, I'm on your side now, so uh, I, thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, thank you for making some time to join us. And also thanks for inviting me as a guest on your podcast, which is scheduled to air at the same time as this episode. Yeah. All right. Before I get started with my few short questions, I'm going to pour myself my favorite drink, which is my amaretto, right here with mm -hmm. me. <laughs> What are you having? Well... This here in Montreal, it's like eight thirty in the morning. Oh. So I have tea here. I have a warm drink. <laughs> That sounds like a good idea. Yeah, not as festive as uh, yeah, <laughs> but it's uh, it's already uh, end of the day there. So right now, I need a stronger drink to finish my day, and you need a strong drink in a different way to start. <laughs> to start up my day for sure. Fair enough. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Okay. So I hope you're. Awake enough now for the short questions. Yeah. Great. Yeah. How early does your morning start, and what does it look like? Okay. There's there's the 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 regular morning and there's the ideal morning. The ideal morning starts at five uh, thirty with with some meditation. These days I haven't been able to do that <laughs> as much as uh, as uh, as other times before. But uh, so let's say an ideal morning, uh, like, I don't know, 20 minutes, uh, 30 minutes, uh, yoga, meditation, and then uh, preparing for, you know, I have two kids. I have a nine-year-old and, um, and uh, one that's turning six in a, in a couple of days. 
so you know preparing breakfast and getting the family ready uh these days it, it's uh we're recording this uh, in middle well in the beginning of the summer so these days it's also uh part of the routine is preparing the kids for day camp and uh and then once they're they're at day camp coming home usually and start uh looking at at social media going on twitter etc and doing my my posts uh, name namely for the podcast uh, around nine and then work and uh yeah and work these days uh, it's there's some translation some uh, transcription uh, videos things like that all around uh, the, the the thematic of uh, either medicine or anything biomedical all right so some meditation, family, all getting ready, and then also some work before work on the podcast. Yes, and then exactly. Job. All right. What music could you listen to all day long? All day long. Uh, it, it would be jazz uh, of some kind. Uh, n- not so much free jazz, <laughs> but uh, classics, uh, jazz classics. Um, and, and I don't know, I, I, could, uh, uh, I could mention... Different. Did you want a specific music, or is the style of music enough? The style is enough, but I was actually also mm-hmm. wonder, wondering in what language you listen to the music. Oh, that's interesting. J- jazz is instrumental, uh, but mostly if I, if I listen to music uh, that, that's that is uh, that's that's accompanied with song, it's going to be uh, in English. Mostly in English. Mostly, yeah. Same goes for me. <laughs> <laughs> who was your favorite teacher when you were young and why oh okay that is an interesting question and it's a lot you know i haven't thought about that for a long time um do you still remember anyone well i do uh I, I, the thing is i was going i was trying to go really back to high school but in university uh i had th- there was uh this microbiology uh, professor who's still a professor at the university of lisbon rogerio tenreiro who uh, was had a you know special personality uh, and and uh, anyway he he uh made things interesting and really inspired me to you know to go deeper into microbiology and and genetics but before that i remember in in high school it's funny. I have uh, this prof- this teacher, uh, and she was a teacher of history and, and geography. She, somehow there was, there was something special about her, uh, Madame Rocha, because I, I did uh, I, I did the lycée français, the, the French lycée in Lisbon. My last four years of of high school were there. Yeah, I would say that. And and then it's funny. I, I haven't thought of that in such a long time that it's it's hard to to find another to find someone else to to add. Well, at least some good memories popped into your mind. I I do I do uh, yeah I do have have good memories, uh, and and for sure I, one thing that I've noticed with time is I was always better at subjects where the teacher was inspiring, and and I remember that that I I was lucky enough to have some along the way. Exactly, that's why I asked the question. I think it makes such a big difference, right, in the way it that does. someone ins- brings about the topic and inspires mm-hmm. you to learn more about it. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, thanks for that. What do you do in your free time if you manage to have some time just for yourself? Well, um, right now, time just for myself. Well, lately, uh, it's funny, I had done Aikido, so martial arts for a while when I I was young. And then eventually I changed countries, etc. And and, and I stopped. Uh, I did some Aikido at the McGill University here. Now, because of my kids, it's not something I do alone, but it's something I mean I'm picked up again and that I really enjoy a lot. Uh, and I'm doing karate now, and I hope I'm able to keep doing it now, like for years and years until I, till I can't do it anymore. <laughs> but martial arts, it's it's something that uh, that I really feel that because I kind of started because my to kind of motivate my son to also do it, and now. I I kind of picked it up again uh, the the interest and the uh the the the, the pleasure of uh, of being physically active and learning learning that type of uh, of thing it's and the community around it too it's also cool. That's right. Yeah, you can tell your son that uh women are also in martial arts. I'm doing some kickbox myself. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> and it helps. 
Yeah, and uh, actually the the class the class uh, the the and the, the sensei that we have, it's it's uh, it's mixed of course, but there's a lot of of little girls, so it's not. And it's funny, eh? You in the past, if you think of uh, I don't know, Karate Kid, you know, you imagine a class full of boys in a red uh, red gi, right? Today, I think things have changed, and I've seen there's even a school of uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu where we are. And uh, well, there's there's classes for wi- just for women, which is also a different thing with techniques and 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 things specifically uh, that are that are adapted to whichever you know uh, habitual acts of, of of violence, let's say, women can be exposed to. Uh, but also, all the classes are like there's as many girls as there are boys, and and that's it's it's cool. It's a cool thing. That's a cool development. Yeah, I like that. It is. What part do you like best about being a podcast host? The part that I really enjoy the most is uh, getting to know the 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 the, the people uh, the people that I interview. I'm actually an introvert, and I I'm it's interesting. I kind of I'm curious, and I, and I should try to start asking this of other podcasters I meet. What's the distribution of introverts versus extroverts in the podcasting world? But uh, I have a feeling that there's a lot of introverts. But then, in the in the framework, in the context of a podcast where you're behind a microphone and and you know, it, th- there's something there that I feel that makes it easy for me to interact with people, and I really like that. I really enjoy uh, meeting, getting to know the people, finding sometimes. Making the like you just did with me, making them think of things they hadn't, you know, they hadn't in a while, and then even at the end they say, "Oh, you know what? That question you asked, I hadn't thought of that." I that those little those moments really, really, uh, I enjoy them a lot. Yeah, they are great. I like that too. They are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for sharing. Now I'm really ready to learn more about your academic journey. So let's start at the beginning. What has inspired you to start a BSc and to continue with an MSc in microbiology and genetics? Yeah, so I was also I was always curious about uh, about uh, nature and 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 biology from a young age, and I don't know. I was always I remember for a long the longest time if I found uh, I don't know bones. I remember actually I don't, I don't I didn't mention this. I was born in Belgium and. I grew up there until I was seven. And I remember that my parents would go meet their friends at this university. Uh, I think it was in Louvain, Leuven. And so there was, it was a, a bar, a, like a cafe, a university cafe. And there must have been some sort of um, facility there that studied uh, pigeons or whatever. But I would find bones, pigeon bones, and I collected them. Like, And I, I was nine. No, I, I couldn't be nine at that time. Because seven, eight, I, we came back to, to Portugal. So anyway, I was seven, six, seven, and I was collecting bones and uh, and I don't know, looking at them, and I didn't really know know you know more than that. So there was an interest from from before, but eventually, once you know, in high school, you learn about genetics. It re- the, you know again, you, you asked about people who inspire you, and I did have teachers uh, in, in at the Lycée Français that really got me hooked into. What are you know the cell, the the genome, DNA, uh, RNA, etc. And it was an easy kind of choice to then go into university and do that. Just a, pr- a precision that now it's true that today my my degree in Portugal equi- is equivalent to a, a, a bachelor's plus masters. But at the time it it wasn't. It was five years, but it was just called a licenciatura a license. After that, I really wasn't so sure that i you know that i wanted to either continue studies or you know what i was going to do professionally and and yeah because i had some experience like you mentioned in the bachelors of uh, participating in courses to do with uh, taxonomy with microbial taxonomy at, uh, with this professor uh, rogerio that i to- told you about he was very dynamic he organized a lot of workshops and and he took us the students to kind of to give some some of the classes so that that was really really cool i really liked that experience of teaching and um yeah i think i'm going too fast because you you didn't ask that question yet but anyway i the the reason why i got into microbiology microbiology and genetics came from my high school uh, at the end of of high school and and the teachers i had at that time that that got me interested 
All right. So it was always going to be these exact sciences. Like you never enjoyed maybe languages even more because you speak quite a few languages, don't you? So that's very perceptive of you. <laughs> well, it's true that you know that I speak a few languages, but I definitely, when it was uh, the time to decide what to do in university, I was uh, I was kind of torn between uh, do, doing what we call in Portuguese Germanics, which would go, which would be German and English to do a bachelor's uh, in 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 those, because I had really good grades and I really liked German, which is the less usual, let's say. Um, now you know everyone studies English now. All the all the kids come out learning English, but at the Lycée Français, uh, I had a really good teacher and I had like four years of German. I didn't really know whether that or science, but then my parents, specifically my mom, who she doesn't have a university degree, but she, when she was in Belgium, she started a biology degree. It's funny. Uh, and she said, you know, go, go do sciences, go do hard, uh, hard sciences. You'll do languages, you're, you can pick them up. You're good at it. You can do it later on. And she was right. And she was right. And, and it's funny that now I'm doing translation after all this time. All like both ends ended ended up meeting at the end. <laughs> Very nice, cool. All right, so following these two degrees, the BSc and the MSc, you've landed a few positions as teaching assistant and as a government representative for Portugal's Pharmacy and Drug Administration Agency, mm -hmm. which lasted for about five years, right? Yeah. And then you started a PhD in cell biology. So what happened in those years that made you stop working in the field and then continue with a PhD? So uh, this is a very good question, and and one of the things that's that inter interesting about it is that if if the interest is there, and if you don't leave, let too many years go by, and also if you don't steer away too much from your domain, you can go back. You can go back and pick up your studies uh, later on. But uh, what happened is right after finishing my uh, let's say masters, my licenciatura. I had the luck to at the university there to to know through my network there and, and of the professors etc to know to get to know someone who was uh, looking for these representatives like like you said for um, the the Portuguese uh, drug administration and in what context well generic drugs didn't exist in Portugal at that time and they were the, that government was introducing them And what happened was that uh, the medical community was resisting. There was resistance. What are these drugs? We don't know them. We're not sure of their quality. And, you know, today everyone takes generic drugs. It's become normal. But at the time, you know, there was some questions. Are these second grade drugs that are coming from who knows where, etc., etc.? So the government set up a program and they, they recruited people who had just come out of university. They trained us. To go and present all around the country in the in the health centers, to do this this standard presentation, and to, and they also prepared us to answer the the questions and the worries that that people were that the doctors and and the healthcare uh, professionals were going to ask us. So I did that for around a year, and and that that's that was kind of a coincidence and a, a kind of a lucky strike of of being at the right time where. This person was looking for people. I had an interview. They, you know, I they they thought I was a good fit, and they brought me into this team. And this this is after being a couple of years staying at the lab where I had finished, let's say, my final project. And after the final project and finishing my my degree, I stayed there a couple of years. So I left university and did that for a year or so. And then the the government changed, and the program was just finished abruptly. But I, somehow, this person who had interviewed me. She was professor at a private university. That there was just uh, giving, uh, uh, giving. There was just uh, offering degrees for people who want to work in the health domain, but technical, uh, like a radiologist, uh, all those types of technical jobs in in health. And she remembered me. She said, "David, uh, I we're looking for uh, teachers' assistants for lab assistants." Uh, at this university, would you like to go interview? And same thing. So uh, it was it was networking, and it was luck in in a in a way. You could say that, and that it was also you being in the right place at the right time. But on the other hand, she remembered you because she remembered yeah. your work that you put in. Yeah, 
if she hadn't been well impressed, let's say, she probably wouldn't have contacted me. You're right. Exactly. <laughs> Are you saying I'm being too modest? A little bit. <laughs> you can be a bit more proud. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but but anyway, that was a great experience. But that that uh, year of teaching in the in the lab the lab classes, that's when I felt the, the 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 calling of going back to study to go to do my PhD and why? Well, it was interesting and it was super cool. The interaction actually, I super super enjoyed the interaction with the students. It was really really fun, but I was also in contact with the professors, and I I felt I want to teach at that level. And it's funny because today I'm not teaching, and and, and teaching at, at university level is is a reality that I started to understand with time. But after that year, I said, you know what? It's at that level that I want to be teaching. And for that, what do I need? I need a PhD. And then, you know, one thing leads to the next. Someone told me about this great PhD program in Coimbra, uh, which was in a center that was based, that was working just on neuroscience. It's the center for neuroscience there. And I interviewed for that program and for another one, another large program in Portugal and I was accepted in in the Coimbra program so that that was basically it it was some a little bit of uh, you know networking and being at the right place but also doing something that I enjoyed so you had a goal in mind when you started yeah and you were registered at the university in Portugal but then you've combined it somehow with Canada that's it so at the it's it's the BEB uh, PhD program, that's what it's called, uh, Biology and Biomedicine. And what they do is they give you, and now it's shorter, I think, a few months of, of seminars where, where everyone's together taking some seminars to kind of bring up the level of... For us, it was a, actually a full year. In Portugal. In Portugal. And to bring up the level, because we were coming from different fields. We were uh, 12, 12 students, and we we didn't have, all have the same profile and like this i was the 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 uh the eldest one and i was the only one with this kind of thing of leaving academia and coming back uh but there were people who were just coming back from their uh, erasmus in italy and blah blah you know it was very very different and so they did this these seminars to kind of have everyone at the same level and then they said well you can stay at one of our labs or we'd like that a part of you would would go abroad Who's interested in going abroad? And a few of us were. Yeah, there we go. And uh, yeah, I you know I I visited a lab in London. I visited one in uh, Heidelberg and uh, a couple in Montreal. And I fell in love with Montreal and stayed here. That sounds very cool. You got a chance to be all over the place and see different labs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I, I think. If you're in a PhD in a PhD program like this, I think it's quite frequent in our, you know, in this in the scientific domain, to for things to happen this way. But then also, a, you know, a, a large proportion of them uh, of us stayed in Portugal or, yeah, or just went to Spain or England, which is still pretty, you know, it's it's closer and it's easier to come back home and and uh, you know see your friends and family. So yes. Please tell me more about your field. Uh, what was your doctoral research focused on exactly? So my uh, doctoral research, uh, I was working in the, the Cloutier lab at, uh, at the uh, Montreal Neurological Institute. And in a center that's called the, the Center for Neuronal Survival. And the, the mission of a center like this, of course, is to try and find uh, answers about the mechanisms that allow... Uh, neurons to survive in difficult situations, in uh, after injuries, etc. How do how does science uh, take on such a problem? Well, every everyone in the domain works works on a, on a tiny little thing, and with time, the different results come out, and you build kind of a base that's that at a certain point. Uh, tips the scale towards okay now we we're at the new paradigm and we found this this thing that can help a lot or we discover this new thing that answers this question that that uh, no one had before what i worked on and which was uh, for me very interesting i worked on olfactory neurons your olfactory neurons the ones that allow you to sense to sense smells are have this very particular thing that they are part of the central nervous system but there's two things they are exposed directly to the outer world because within your olfactory epithelium 
they have these little projections that these little let's say tendrils that have uh, olfactory receptors but they need to be exposed to air in, in inside your nose to get the chemicals and and smell i don't know a rose uh, uh, <laughs> something food uh, whatever but this means two things that they're also subject to aggression by i don't know chemicals that that can uh, that can uh, injure the neurons etc because they're exposed right because they're exposed to the outer world let's say versus your the other ner uh, nerves of your central nervous system which who, which are not and the thing is that yes they're exposed they die but these neurons throughout life until a certain age because eventually you get older and you know I've, i don't know if you've heard but or if you know someone who's older, said, oh, you know, things don't taste like they did. You know, uh, I, I'm cooking, but I can't really right. do it as before. Yeah. But throughout the rest of your life, they're constantly, some of them are dying and some of them are replacing them. So th somehow they have the system of regeneration of the olfactory epithelium. And this is interesting because in other parts of the central nervous system and you know a classical one that we talk you talk about is in your spine if you have a i don't know a motorbike accident and your spine is severed it doesn't regenerate and then often often you have a paraplegia or a, depending on where the, the lesion is so this is all kind of a, a 30,000 <laughs> feet view to to tell you that i was studying how certain molecules in the olfactory epithelium, we're keeping some of these the stem cells of the olfactory epithelium quiescent and, and waiting to mature. And what was then the signal to say, okay, enough uh, olfactory neurons have died. Let's let's mature you into uh, an olfactory neuron because this person needs to smell some roses right now. <laughs> right, or amaretto. Or, or amaretto. There you go. And, and when when you when you it's true that when you taste uh, the uh, the olfactory system also has a part plays a part in that too. Anyway, but this is it. I studied and and I think I I, I don't know. I don't think I'm, I need to go much deeper into it. But I studied a, a couple of a receptor and the and the ligand. The ligand is the molecule that uh, that activates the receptor. Uh, how they are they are distributed in the different layers of the olfactory neuron. And how, what role they play in maintaining the right number of olfactory neurons versus the other cells that are support cells, let's say, in the olfactory epithelium. Does that? How, did you wait? Did I did, did I do good? Uh, I think I science did communication? completely understand yeah. that. So that was good. Yeah, okay. that was definitely good awesome. for a political scientist who doesn't know anything about these things. It sounded pretty clear. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Thanks for that. So now I understand why you started doing the PhD and what it was about, and also that you've been at quite a few different universities to do the research. But what did you find the most difficult about doing a PhD? So definitely the 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 fact that, and this is particular to where I am. You know, in, in here in in uh, North America. PhDs, especially in, in our domain, and I, I think others too, take a long time. I know in England it's three years, and at the end of the third year you need to be done, right? The fact that it takes so long... What do you mean by long? Five, six, seven years. Okay. You know, versus it, it, it can be double, double what you guys. I don't know. I don't know you how long you're expected to take to to do yours. I've been told that the average of PhD students in Israel who finish is about six years. I got a scholarship for three, and I'm allowed to do it in four. So I hope that three to four will definitely okay. be it. Let's see. Okay, and and. I, I'm, I'm sure you will, and and I was kind of in the same situation. I also had a scholarship for three, and that that had other issues after of how do I get financing for the because the thing is that I, and not going back, I would have started with a different project. I started with a project that was too unsure, and then things didn't work, and then after the second year, things still hadn't worked, and I was already two thirds through my money. Right, so dealing with with that. Let's say specifically as a visiting research student, having to deal with that thing of the the time going by, results not coming, and uh, and having to to deal with maybe a feel a feeling of failure, but then still pushing through to say, okay, we're gonna find something, we're gonna get a result. Let's let's push through and 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 make this happen because for sure at a certain point there's thoughts of quitting, right? Right. So I would say. 
being abroad and uh and being alone in in this this process that has that you know there's bureaucracy in there uh there's uh the, there's the question of of money and then there's a question of the scientific process which is trial and error it's not just try it's, it's not win 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 right. you fail you fail you fail and then you find this one thing and just i don't know i, I i'm not i'm think you i haven't mentioned this to you but the the silver lining six years after i defended a phd and in my in my case with a just with a thesis no articles which is you know it's not spectacular and and uh, and, and it's it's actually it also dictated that i wouldn't stay in academia because uh, you, you know after if you don't have papers you, it's really hard to make a case for yourself but six years after that i got a uh, an email from a, a very, an important journal in in the domain development saying uh so mr uh, david the silva your author your co-author on this paper blah 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 please give us uh, give us your uh, your authorization and uh, i was like what what paper and i i called my my supervisor and it was the the results of the work after you know that was coming from my thesis but all the steps they had to take afterwards to have a paper on that and uh, eventually it got published so it was a it was a special congratulations yeah <laughs> thank you uh, and you know and it kind of uh, even after all that time it's uh, I, i felt okay so i was on the right track so it, it really wasn't a failure <laughs> exactly and sometimes you feel like things are a complete failure because you've been working on this thing for two years and everything seems to go wrong it just doesn't work out but on the other hand yeah. you also feel so i've already been doing it wrong for two years so i must be really close to the yeah. right way of doing it <laughs> so i just need that little bit more financial input to be able yeah. to make that last step right and then maybe something that i caught up upon uh while you were talking being a foreign student in a, in another country uh brings with it much more insecurity because usually you're not allowed to work right you're only dependent on the scholarship that you can get but you can't go out and have a job on the side to keep you going and to pay rent and food that you need as any other normal human being so how did you get through that Well, one of the things I, I was talking about martial arts and uh, I got into the Aikido club, the McGill Aikido club. And I started, you know, doing, even though I, I felt guilty of I'm taking hours that I could be at lab to do Aikido, I decided, no, this is something I'm going to do. I need to have this other thing that I do. And and uh, also with people at the lab, we were, you know, we were playing. Actually, uh, that that was a great thing about the institute I was at. Uh, we had a soccer team. We were playing intramural soccer. Some of them were, uh, I kind of, at a certain point, was playing uh, squash because there was, you know, we were close to the, the McGill sports facilities. And, and uh, there were, uh, we pl played softball, softball in the summer. <laughs> so, you know, it was fun. I even, I, it's funny, eh? That part was really, really good and helped me a lot. The social part of the institute uh, of the MNI. We had a hockey team, a, ho a nice hockey team, and I learned to skate. And I even uh, ended up playing also intramural hockey. So one of the ways I had to stay afloat was having these uh, these outside uh, activities and social activities, uh, more sports in this case. Right. Not only the physical exercise, which we all know is supposed to be good for you, especially if you sit behind your desk all day. Yeah. Um, exactly. Or at the microscope. Right, yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Me, me, not so much, but you, of course. Yeah. So, <laughs> but also to have that social interaction. And I suppose because it was at the university that you played these sports with peers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was meeting people from other departments, etc. Yeah, it was cool. And people that also go through maybe similar things to have a little bit of a support group of peers. Definitely. Very good. Very good tip. All right. So as soon as you finished your PhD, you started working as a medical writer. Can you explain why you decided to leave academia and how you specifically go into such a career path? So uh, why I decided to leave? Well, like I said, the, the, if the end of my PhD uh, was, didn't go so well. And, uh, you know, you at least want to have one article. And even there's universities where, where there's uh, a requirement for a, sp a specific number of articles. Um, but 
it was it was psychologically hard. It was uh, financially difficult. The last year, once I finished writing, I, I and as I was writing, I was looking for a job already. And what I did was go through my network because I had heard that people that had been at the institute doing masters or or even PhDs that had uh, left. Uh, that they were finding jobs as medical writers. It's something that, you know, you hear this in the corridors, etc. And, you know, you, we talked about uh, my my the, the fact that I like languages and I had a, you know, I was good on, on that side. And once I started hearing that, I thought, you know what, maybe this is something that I could do because I'm I'm pretty good. Let's see if I can reach some of these people who were here last year and aren't anymore. And I just went through my network and um, and just like that, one one of the people answered and said, oh, you know what, prepare a CV, uh, kind of a non-academic CV, uh, send it to me and I'll I'll pass it on to HR. And uh, I got, you know, I went for an interview, did a, a te- like a test, uh, you, you had to... Uh, in this specific case, they gave you a couple of paragraphs of a scientific book that you had to uh, summarize, but write in a simpler language, kind of uh, uh, popular like science. So that I also would understand. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And because this company, this company, like you mentioned, was a company that prepared training materials for pharmaceuticals. So anything from uh, teaching uh, sales representatives uh, about the disease or about the drug that they're selling or about the treatment landscape so the competitors in the same disease etc etc so i and i i did that interview uh, t- i did the test did two interviews and and got hired and i stayed there for almost five years after until i became the last two years i was senior medical writer like you mentioned so you were in the right place yeah right place uh, and uh, again i I'm lucky to be uh, here at mcgill and this company was specifically targeting people coming from uh, from mcgill and uh, and with with my profile and the and you know masters or phd so it, it was fairly simple in that sense all right well when we talked about why you went on with the phd you mentioned that you had this idea that you would like to teach on the, at the level of university, right? And now uh, I understand that maybe doing the PhD really made you figure out that this is not for you. How mm-hmm. did you come to realize that? And how did that make you feel? And how did you come to grips with that, really, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, uh, having now uh, one year of Papa PhD and, and interviews behind me, I think I can give a different answer, but for me, I I really came out of the PhD feeling that I had failed and that I was lucky to have my PhD uh, and that they, you know, to to, to not have been uh, rejected or whatever. And now I, I, I know better, but also I know now that because I was at an institute that is, uh, you know, very well reputed, that all the the supervisors you know publish really well there's where i'm going is if for people out there who are considering doing something like this and one and becoming professors one thing that i might have uh, done different if i if i wanted a different outcome would have been to go to a smaller university let's say smaller university where i would probably have been more um coached uh like because once you're at at a place where the rhythm is pretty high paced there's an expectation that of of some independence on your part and there's there's an expectation of independence for all phd's but i've talked with people uh, you know since uh, and in interviews and it is possible to have a slightly different experience of a phd if you choose a smaller institution where uh, you're gonna have more time with your supervisor, they and, and you know things things can go differently, and also this means that in the end you you know it may be easier to come out and still have a possibility of having you know these because if you want to start to go in, into tenure tenure getting tenure is difficult, but you you need to start in these other positions, uh, these other uh, you know adjunct. Uh, professor positions etc so my my view at the end was okay i can't access professor professoriate anymore now i think looking back and knowing what i know today i think i I wasn't seeing right 
but you might have been able to still do it. Yeah, if I had, but the thing is, it would have it would have meant probably moving towns, etc., etc. And at that time, I already have my my I already had my first child. I was really well settled settled in Montreal. There's a lot of things that go into the equation, also, right? It wasn't necessarily going to make you happy. This was a dream you had six years ago when you started the PhD. Exactly. But then life happened. That's it. Right. That's it. And yeah, and you know what? Uh, these days, uh, now I'm, you know, I'm interacting a lot with people who do science communication, and it's kind of teaching in a way. And I may still find if if that desire to teach is is still in there in me, I may still find a way to do it, but in another form. Okay, so you started talking about your podcast already and how you've learned so much through it. Also, through the podcast, looking back at your own experiences. So, you're almost celebrating its first year's birthday of Papa PhD podcast. Yep. So, congratulations on that, first of all. In three days, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> nice, right in time. And here in What Are You Going to Do With That? We focus very much on the academic journey, while you focus much more on career journeys after the PhD. And I think that's great because there are so many more things than just becoming that professor that we can do out there, out of academia, um, without feeling or being looked at as a failure, which is something you experienced as soon as you finished the PhD you just told me. Yeah. Would you like to tell me more about how your podcast came about and what its goal is? Yeah, so... You're totally right. I think, uh, and th actually, the mission of Papa PhD is that is to dispel this feeling or this uh, idea that if uh, you you go all the way, you get a PhD, and then you don't stay in academia, it's a failure. The idea is to dispel that I that idea, and how it's by showing that so many people have done it and to show how you know how interesting their journeys are and and uh, how stimulating they can be great this is exactly what we want to hear so i'm going to listen to more episodes of papa phd <laughs> so but that's it so a year ago um i i had i have so i had been working with my father in portugal he wanted some help trying to relaunch this small company that we had so tried that for six months didn't work and then you know i and i stayed in montreal the thing is i was just i was waking up super early to to work at, at almost at portuguese hours but the thing is that when we said okay uh, we tried it didn't work uh, let's go back let's resume our activities as before then i had a couple of weeks months where i had more time before you know contracts were coming back to to the to the usual rhythm and um Again, it's funny eh? because this wanting to teach that I, I talked about before, Papa PhD, in a way, it's kind of feeding that desire uh, of mine to kind of give back to the student community, although it's in a totally different format than, than teaching per se. But I, I've had this from before. Anytime I got an invitation to go on, on a career panel, I, you know, it was, I was, yes, I, I always said yes. And, and um, wanted to kind of share my 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 views and my insights with students. And last year, I I don't know, I saw an article out there saying why you should start your podcast at that time where I was more I had more free time. Uh, why you should start a podcast in 2019? And somehow it f it happened at a time where I was permeable to that, and it just came like that. You know what? I should start a podcast to talk with the students to, uh, or with the the young graduates or even postdocs i've been having conversations with postdocs too and that's how that's how it started this is how i'm going to give back i'm going to because i was i i know my you know i some people from specifically from mcgill but also uh, from portugal that have really great career stories i'm gonna first ask them if they're interested in, in sharing these stories and then, and then I saw that they were I said you know what I'm going to start a podcast and and this is how the the idea started and the, although I didn't uh, do any uh, like uh, um, survey to see if, if students were interested I had taken part like I said in a, in a couple of uh, career panels so I, I knew that there was uh, there was a need there to be reassured and to be inspired and to, to, to see the options out there 
what I didn't know is were people interested in sharing the stories, and I quickly saw that that they were, and that that's what I, I find is really cool about the, the 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 PhD and even masters community is people are really because they they go through this they all go through these difficulties. Everyone went to some sort of an, or another of, of difficulties. It's it's hard work and it's it's a whole chunk of your life, right? And a lot, a lot, a lot of people in the community want to or are super happy to give back to the people who are now going through. And and that's how the project was born. And then, you know, first interview, first couple of interviews, etc. Now, you know, one thing leads to another. And here I am one year after and uh, with, with uh, uh, around 50 uh, guests that I've had. And it's it's been a great ride, and I'm now preparing season two, so I'm I'm happy, and I'm here now here on on uh, what are you going to do with that, and uh, uh, and I think the the cool thing is, I think it, this is reaching people, and I think this is making a difference for for people. I've had it's, it's just a handful for now, but I had listeners tell me thanks for your podcast. Uh, it's it's you know I'm in my masters now, and I. I I listen to the episodes because uh, they they really make me feel more uh, less anxious about what's coming after, or you know, or I didn't know there were so many possibilities. So just these two three uh, interactions I've had already make me feel that uh, that the the idea and the effort is worth it. All right, cheers to that. <laughs> cheers to that, and this 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 means that what you guys are doing also don't don't in any uh, no don't by any chance have a doubt that it's useful and it's going to help someone out there. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. I do hope that that's the impact we have. That's why we're doing it. I'm sure it does. So you already mentioned that there's a second season coming up, fingers crossed. Um, and that's actually my last question. What is your next project and what are you going to do with that? <laughs> it's interesting, eh? Uh, yeah. So season two is coming up. Um, in season two, it's uh, I'm going to try to do a, a couple of things and one main thing is make sure i i have very di- a very diverse uh, group of, of guests uh, like masters phds uh, uh, post i've had guests on the, on the show who are academics they're professors but they do very cool things in science outreach they uh, you know some of some of them have done these like intersectional things of uh, science as uh, science and philosophy and uh, or science and dance you know but i want more of that also one thing that i really want is to have to bring specialists in the domain in the career in the like post phd career domain there there are out there they exist they some of them have been working for a while some of them are in universities in departments and i i kind of want also to to have these episodes that are going to be more talking about a specific theme or a specific skill or you know some something that is more uh, more focused uh, than than just someone's story. So uh, for Papa PhD is that it's that. Um, now I have another project <laughs> that that's coming up, but it's because I'm I'm still you know I'm still uh, my my day job is doing translation and linguistic services in the biomedical domain, and I'm in conversations to start a podcast about about that side of things. But that's another another chapter. Something that's still in your mind or already in progress? In conversation with the, with the possible co-host, etc. All right. So. Okay. Thank you very much for sharing. I've been looking at the time and we've been talking quite a lot because yeah. it's been so interesting. I think so. <laughs> um, but I do want to ask my few short last questions, but let's try and okay. keep them very short. All right. Rapid fire. <laughs> okay. One, what was the most significant conference that you've been to? Uh, you know what? That That's a tough question. Why? Because during my PhD, I didn't go to any conference outside Montreal. Now looking back, it, kind of hurts <laughs> to see other people going but there were different things uh, and and there was a fear of being scooped uh, by you know by my professor at the time people were going to SFN I didn't I never did you know SFN my gosh I here I am talking to you to you in political science <laughs> it's society for neuroscience right maybe you'll get a chance in a different capacity then secondly have you received a scholarship so I did so with my program in Portugal I had a very good uh, uh, three-year scholarship that came with 
once you were selected into the program, you got you, you got this this scholarship. So yes. All right. Very helpful. And it was uh, the it was yeah very helpful the the from the foundation of for science and technology of, of portugal it's the the portuguese large uh, foundation that gives out phd scholarships to students all right so what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field huh that is a very good question and you don't have to be humble for this one <laughs> well the thing is uh, I haven't thought, you know, like I said, my my work or whatever came from my work was published six years after. Uh, I've looked, it has been cited a couple of times, but the, it, you know, the the only, I'd say, a contribution that I gave to my field was doing this, you know, let's say, uh, uh, groundwork for this article that, that came up, that came out in, in development in uh, 2016. So, yeah, and... and it's that's the only that's the only that I know unless my professor emails me if he, if he hears this episode and says David actually <laughs> that experiment that you had done but uh, it, it no it was my the, the work the of my thesis okay who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished I have a very good friend it's called Manuel Buscarlet and uh, he works with hemato the hematopoietic system so the cells that give birth to blood cells and i'd say uh, around me from the people who who i was close to during my phd i really admire what he's done and uh, he goes to conferences and and he really uh, is is uh, is doing great work in his in his domain so i'd say my my good friend manuel all right so that's to him cheers cheers manu and then the last one how do you relax after a hard day of work? Hmm. It's going to sound uh, repetitive, but if I if it's a Monday or Wednesday, there's karate at the end of the day. And then if I'm able to to uh, you know get home, etc., put the kids to bed and then do a meditation after that, I'd say that would be the the top possible relaxation. That sounds very healthy. All right, so Thanks again very much for joining us today and also for sharing your journey with us. I also want to thank our listeners. Don't forget to follow us and Papa PhD on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And we'd appreciate a like and a share very much. Okay, so I think we're almost ready for the other recording, aren't we? Yeah. It, well, so it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, do listen. And uh, now we're gonna go. Uh, how do? You, how was it? Uh, through the looking glass and do the opposite. The the the, the twin interview. Exactly. Which, which is the the PhD interview of Danny Reyes. 